that the primary truth that we see here this morning is is that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. I guess you could go on and say was crucified, dead, and buried. Right, kids? Haven't you heard those words before? We say it every month when it comes to Communion Sunday. We quote the Apostles' Creed. And it's interesting that as you look at the Apostles' Creed, and I did that this week, that uh, to, to really make note that there's only two people that's mentioned in the Apostles' Creed other than God himself and his three persons, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The first person that's mentioned is Mary, and that makes sense. She's the mother of Jesus, and it speaks of Christ's birth, which would speak of his incarnation and his humanity, so it makes sense that Mary would make the cut. But it's really odd that the only other person mentioned in the Apostles' Creed is a Roman politician by the name of Pontius Pilate. He was a brutal governor of Judea. As a matter of fact, people didn't really like Pilate that much. He was a man who wielded enormous power. I don't know if you know much about Pilate, but he actually came from Spain and he found himself in Rome. And so he married the daughter of the Emperor Augustus, and she was a vile, wicked woman. Okay, so it's it's really interesting as you look at these uh, this husband-wife team, and then you see what the Bible says about them. Uh, it's it's just really sort of very different because uh, Pilate was a, a very ruthless man, and and his wife was a very vile woman. And yet, she was terrified. It doesn't say so in Mark's gospel, but in other gospels, it says she was terrified by the dreams she had about Jesus. And she came to her husband, and it's like, look, you need to have nothing to do with this man. I have suffered greatly because of the dreams that I have had. And, and even as you look at Pilate, he doesn't look at this confident, ruthless man that we see in Scripture. But anyway, uh, Pilate was a man who asked to be the prefect of Judea. Like I said, he was a tyrant. In Luke chapter 13, Luke 13, uh, verse 1, uh, we read there were some present at that very time who told him, that is, told Jesus, about the Galileans. And it goes on and it says, uh, those whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And so Pilate had put these Galileans to death mixing their blood with the blood of the sacrifices that they offered. On another occasion in Jerusalem, Pilate had taken the money from the temple because he wanted to build an aqueduct. Well, you can imagine how the Jews would have reacted to that. And in the opposition that followed, many Jews were slaughtered by Pilate. So he was a, he was a really cruel, ruthless man. Now, why do you think that such a man as that would be mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. Well, there could be any number of reasons, but I would suggest to you that one reality is that it points to the reality of a factual person who existed, a public figure that even secular historians could go back to and say, yeah, Pilate really existed, which would you know, sort of solidify in the minds of those who maybe don't believe in the Lord Jesus that he is an actual factual person who who lived, and that Pilate is the one that put Christ to death. Now, Pilate lived in Caesarea, but during the Passover, he would come to Jerusalem, because there were tons of Jews, people from 
Jews from all over the world that would come back to Jerusalem. And we've talked about in the past how uh, Jerusalem would swell population-wise during the week of the Passover. And so with that, um, and this, the, the whole feast of the Passover, there was sort of this overwhelming nationalism that the Jews had, which would remind them of the fact that they were being occupied by the hated Romans. And so, you know, it's, it's always probably a tough job for the Romans to keep the Jews in line, but especially when they felt that sense of nationalism, you could just tell that, that uh, Pilate wanted to make sure that there were no riots that broke out and that would get him in trouble with the emperor. So he would move his entourage from Caesarea to Jerusalem to be a, excuse me, to be a presence there so there would be no trouble. <coughs> excuse me. So it was during uh, the, this Passover that the Jews brought Jesus before this ruthless governor, Pontius Pilate. Now, as I said, Pilate may have had a lot of power, but the ultimate power, the, the ultimate sovereignty, the ultimate rule, the ultimate control lies in the hands of the Father who is in heaven. And so even though for Jesus, the storm is sort of swirling around. He's been put on trial by the Jews in sort of a kangaroo court type thing where they were looking for guilt, trying to come up with charges against him. Uh, he's, he's meeting with Pilate and sort of the same kind of circumstances that are happening. There's just sort of a, a calmness. There's just sort of a, a, an ease in Christ. Thank you. Uh, that uh, that we see because he knows that the Father loves him. We see this morning the silence of the Lamb. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. It's just what Christ went through in this account in Mark chapter 15. The first point I want us to see is the Messiah's silence. The silence of the Lamb. Now, Mark writes in his customary way where um, everything is happening very rapidly. You know, one of the most common words in Mark's gospel is immediately, immediately. You know, it's just a very fast-paced uh, book. And we read in Mark 15:1, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. Now, the council, the Sanhedrin, had been up all night looking for things uh, that they might charge Jesus with. And even the witnesses they brought, they couldn't get them to agree on anything. And the Old Testament required that there be at least two witnesses to everything. And, and the religious leaders couldn't even make that happen. And then finally, Jesus admits that he is God, which in their minds meant that he's speaking blasphemy, which would be true if Jesus wasn't really God. But he was, so it wasn't blasphemy. But they thought it was. And so they thought, okay, this is what we need to put him to death, and we feel justified in doing that. And so it says here that the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes. Uh, it's not that they really had a second meeting. It's just sort of a continuation of the meeting that they had the night before uh, to make their conclusion official, that this man was guilty and that they're going to take him to Pilate. Well, the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead, and Christ's admission um, that he was God, as I said, was good enough for them. But for Pilate, 
that wouldn't have really made any difference. He didn't care about blasphemy. He didn't care about religion. He didn't fear God. He probably had many gods in his home. And so the charges that the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate with was that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Now Mark doesn't tell us a lot in his gospel, but if you look over at Luke chapter 23 and verse 2, Luke gives us a little more detail. Luke 2, 23, 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, of course, their testimony is a little bit of truth with a lot of lie mixed in to it, okay? Jesus did claim to be the Christ, a king, but he did not forbid them from paying tribute to Caesar. He was not leaving, leading any kind of insurrection or rebellion against Rome because, of course, for someone to claim to be a king in Judea was a big deal, and it would get the attention of the Rome. Of, of the Romans. And so treachery and insurrection must be addressed. And as we talked about just a minute ago, Pilate would have been more than happy to do that and to do whatever was necessary. And so Pilate thought, I need to get to the heart of this and see what's going on. And so in verse 2, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Now, literally in the Greek, it says, you yourself have said you yourself have said. And, and many commentators think that Christ is saying he's sort of a yes but type of answer that he's giving to Pilate here. He's saying, yes, I am the king of the Jews, but not in the way that you think. Okay, uh, John in his gospel in chapter 18, verse 36, uh, here again, John gives a little bit more of the details than Mark does. And uh, in John's gospel, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. In other words, I am a king, but not in the way that you think. Uh, and so Jesus is not leading a rebellion. So He's no threat to the Roman government. So in verse 4, we read that Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. He's not trying to lead a rebellion. He's not trying to take over Caesar's position or anything. And of course, uh, Pilate's acquittal at this point in time makes Jesus' enemies very angry. Okay? Uh, they were furious. And if you look at verses 3 and 4, it says, And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? You see, Pilate is just totally amazed that Jesus would just say nothing when he's being falsely accused. But, but look back at Mark chapter 12, just a couple of chapters back, verse 13. And just let your eyes sort of scan over the headings in your Bible. And you'll see that there are, were numerous times where leaders... And experts of the law tested Jesus in the temple, okay? They got him trapped in the corner, and just one group after another came to him and began to ask him questions. But in every case, Jesus put those who were testing him to shame with their answers. 
what we would say is they walked away with their tail between their legs, right? I mean, he just sort of like gave them the definitive answer that they're like, oh, didn't see that coming. And, and they left. And so Jesus could have easily, easily defended himself against the high priest and the Sanhedrin or even before Pilate, but he chose not to do so. Instead, brothers and sisters, our Lord stood before them all being falsely accused. Now, I think we hear that, but I don't think we hear that. Okay, falsely accused. You know, we just read it and go, yep, Jesus was falsely accused. But, but think about yourself. How do you feel when you're falsely accused? Kids, how do you feel when your brothers or your brother or your sister did something and then your parents accuses you for that wrong? Doesn't that make you sort of upset? Don't you think, don't you want to go, well, I didn't do that, that they, I, 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 you know, and then you want to point the finger at them because you've been falsely accused. Or teenagers. I see this sometimes with teenagers. You know, their parents will come to them and they may uh, accuse them of doing something and the teenager may not have done it. And so, you know, the parent sort of is laying out their case before their, the, their young person in their house and, and, and this young person who's a teenager is sort of this ball of emotions and is, you know, maturing to be more like an adult, but is not quite there emotionally yet and hasn't figured out how to act like an adult. And so there's sort of a little bit of mixture of adulthood and childishness and all stuff. And their parents are talking to them. And what do the young person, what do they do? I didn't do that. And it's like, you're talking back to your parents? like really you want to you want to do that and so the parents go you're talking back to me you're grounded for a week now you would think that would be enough to cause that young person to go you know i better just keep my mouth shut from now on but they don't because they feel this sense of justice i did not do this and so they say yeah but 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 i did okay it's two weeks now you would think okay now they're going to get it you know they just need to keep their mouth shut but no justice prevails and so they continue on and they push and they push and they push. But you know, that's not a problem just with teenagers, is it? You know, when we're at work or if a family member says something about us that's not true, it just sort of raises our, our, our dandruff and we get very upset by being accused. Uh, we often protest intensely and loudly when someone accuses us of something we didn't do. And yet Jesus, Jesus says nothing. He's silent. Now why? Well, let me suggest to you there's a couple reasons. One, it's sort of pointless. You know, this, like I said earlier, this is a kangaroo court. This, they're not really seeking justice. They're trumping up charges. And so he could argue till he's blue and face if he wants, but it's not really going to change the mind of the religious leaders. They see an opportunity to put him to death and, and they're going to push that as much as they could. And, and you see that even with Pilate. They're very upset when Pilate doesn't really want to move towards that agenda item. But secondly, Jesus is silent because he's fulfilling the word of God. In, in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, and Mark chapter 10, we see over and over and over and over where Jesus uh, really prophesies that he's going to 
have to suffer and die. Let me read from Mark chapter 10, just one of those accounts, Mark 10, 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And that's exactly what is happening to Jesus. And during this last week of Jesus' life, he enters Jerusalem. He goes into the temple. He's around the area. And he deliberately fulfills the prophecies of Scripture regarding the Messiah. Uh, even Isaiah 53, 7, that we looked at last week. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Related to that idea that Jesus is fulfilling uh, scripture is, I would suggest, a third reason why he remains silent. Because Jesus surrenders himself to the overriding providence of God. Jesus submits himself to the overriding providence of God. In the face of injustice, amidst the, the physical abuse that he's enduring, there is a calmness in Jesus as he contemplates his Father in heaven and the carrying out of his will. And knowing that his Father makes no mistakes and that everything is happening according to his plan and his purpose. Oh yes, true. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, Oh Lord, if you will, let this cup pass from me. I mean, he's feeling the agony of what the will of God means for his life. But he does say, but not my will, your will, O God. And he submits himself to the Father, and that's where his peace lies. And you know, brothers and sisters, we, we would do well to remember this in those times when we suffer injustice from other people. It may be because of your faith, it may be because of your work ethic, it may be whatever... But especially as you suffer for your faith, uh, to remember to entrust ourselves to the Father. And that, to be reminded that the things that we're going through are not just the circumstances of man. They're not just the circumstances that people are imposing upon us, but they are part of the plan of God. And so while we may be very upset because people are treating us what we think is wrongly, and may be rightly so very wrong... It's important for us to understand that God is taking us down that path for a reason. And He is a gracious, loving Father. And we can trust Him. And so Jesus submits Himself. He's silent. He was, But what Christ was doing in that time was He was taking on our sin. He was not speaking on His own behalf. But He was bearing the sins of His people. Our guilty record was being given to Him. He wasn't representing himself as someone who was innocent, but he was representing us who were guilty before the Father. So Christ, in some ways, could say nothing. Because as our representative, he was guilty. And we have no defense for our sin before a holy God. And our record and our sin was being laid upon him. And so... Jesus remained silent. Let me, let me read from Isaiah 53. I read verse 7 earlier. Let me read verse 8. By oppression, 
and judgment, he was taken away. I mean, that's, that describes what Jesus is going through. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? That's what Christ was enduring. He was silent because he was stricken for our sins as his people. And so he remained silent. So that's the first point I want us to see is Christ's silence. But I also want us to see Christ's suffering in verses 15 to 20. Sort of going to jump ahead to the end of the story. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Look at verse 15. So Pilate, and then at the end of that verse say, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And then verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. Kids, a battalion was about 600 soldiers. Okay, so that's what we're talking about. They gathered together 600 soldiers, and they clothed him, Jesus, in a purple cloak, and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Now, the scourging was done by a, a Roman whip called a flagellum. Okay? It, it consisted of cords that were... Uh, that had tied into those cords, those leather straps, bits of bone and, and of lead. And, and with this, Jesus was whipped repeatedly. Now, for the Jews, they could only whip someone 39 times. But for the Romans, they had no such limit. They could whip Christ as many times as they wanted. Eusebius uh, records uh, martyrs being whipped with a flagellum, and, and he describes it. He says, after being whipped... They, um, being whipped with it, you could see their inner organs and their arteries being exposed, some even dying from it. And so our Lord, our sweet Lord Jesus Christ, was bruised and he was battered and he was bleeding and bits of flesh were, were hanging from his back. And as Isaiah says, in Isaiah 52, 14, prophesied, hundreds of years beforehand, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And, and on his head, they took and, and they made this crown of thorns and, and they, they pushed that, that, those thorns into the, the head of Jesus until... He was bleeding and then they put a faded purple robe and, and they covered his body and of course that, that robe become blood soaked from the blood from his back and the blood that was coming down from the crown on his head and then they mocked him. Soldiers, a whole battalion, 600 soldiers mocked him having lost all sense of dignity. I, I, I heard a preacher say one time about this text. He said, you know, the greatest lie that we tell our children is sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. What? And that's not true. That's not true. 
the words that people speak, the things that they say, actually go beyond just our physical body and they go down into our soul. And they damage and they hurt us there. And so Christ endured not only the, the physical suffering, but also the humiliation and the shame uh, of, of the, the mocking that they did to him. Here is the, the Lord of glory, who since the beginning of time existed with God and then made creation and created the angels who worshipped him, who bowed at his feet. And then he redeemed the people and those people stood before him and they worshipped him. And yet Christ left all of that, that he might come and stand before these Roman soldiers who would spit upon him and mock him and shame him all for us. And they put the crown of thorns upon his head. Now, why, why a crown of thorns? Well, because thorns were the symbol of the curse. Remember in the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect. It was great. God made everything and he said it was good. And then Adam and Eve sinned. And that sin not only affected us as hum humans, but it even affected the creation. And so then the world began to produce weeds and thorns and thistles. And here is the one who is to undo that curse. He will bear those thorns in his crown. Let me read from Isaiah 53 again. I should have told you to keep your fingers there, I guess. Isaiah 53, 3. Listen to this. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities, another name for our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we were healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Brothers and sisters, our Lord suffered for us because we are sheep that are scattered. We are sheep that sinned against God, a holy God. And so he had to come and he had to pay that price. Which brings us to our third point, and that is Christ's substitution in verses 6 through 15. Now at the feast, he used to release for them, that, that is Pilate, release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do so as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. 
But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you called the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So it was the, the tradition of the Romans to release one prisoner at the Passover. It was sort of like the, the Romans throwing a bone to the Jews, right? You know, here's the people that they had subjected and they ruled over. And it's like, okay, well, let's just try to make this as palatable as we can. So we'll give you one prisoner. So here is this man, Barabbas, who was in prison. He was a rebel. I mean, he wasn't just any rebel. He, he was leading one of the fiercest outbreaks against Rome and, and its dominion over the Jews. And, and in that, there had been uh, bloodshed. There had been murder. He was a violent man. He was rightly condemned, most likely facing the death penalty. And, and the crowd asked for Barabbas to be released. In verses 12 and 13, And Pilate again said to them, What shall I do with the man you called the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. Well, then in verse 14, then Pilate just really begins to argue with the people. You know, why? What, what evil has he done? You know, he's, he's trying to sort of stand up for Jesus in one sense. In, in verse 10, Mark tells us that Pilate knew that the chief priests were really doing this out of envy. Um, but in... Uh, so he was doing it out of envy. You know, it's interesting that if you look at this text, and this isn't the point, this is just sort of a parenthesis, but if you really want to do a study on people-pleasing, you ought to look at this text. Because the religious leaders were people-pleasers. They wanted the praise of the people. They wanted to hear the, the that boy, great job, we love you, that kind of thing from, from the people. What's interesting is Pilate also, as ruthless as he was, and as wicked of a man that he was, he also wanted to appease the people. I'm guessing because they were a large crowd and he didn't want to riot, you know, so he did have a reason. But nonetheless, he was seeking to please people. And yet here is Christ in the middle of this. And who is he seeking to please? But his Heavenly Father. To do the will of of his father. Anyway, just interesting study. Well, if you look closely at this account, what you see being taught here uh, is in symbolism is really the doctrine of substitution. That the guilty one, Barabbas, is being set free so that the innocent one is condemned to death. Now, according to Origen, and, and I, I have to admit, Origen can't be always trusted in the things that, that he wrote. So just keep that in mind. But what he proposes is really not unusual, okay? And, and probably, and it does make sense. Uh, but Barabbas' full name was Jesus Barabbas. And so there's sort of a choice here that Pilate was giving. Who do you want? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus of Nazareth? Of course, the crowd chose Barabbas. But, but it's, this is not a choice only for the crowd, but it really is a, a choice for us as well. So let me ask you this morning, who will you have? Who will you have wash away your sin? Who will you have as you lay your head down at night on 
the pillow this evening and ask God to give you a quiet night's rest, who would you have? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus of Nazareth? Who would you have when the storms are raging in your life all around you and life doesn't make sense and, and sorrows abound in your life and your, your heart is breaking? Maybe you're suffering some sense of injustice. Who will you have? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus of Nazareth? Brothers and sisters, what is your soul saying this morning? Are you saying this morning that I will have Jesus of Nazareth? Because as one who is guilty before God, my only hope in life and death, my only hope in the grave is in Jesus of Nazareth. That he died for me. That he bore the unmitigated wrath of God against me for him. Against him for me. He died to win for me the rights and privileges of adoption that today we may be called children of God. You see, Jesus not only took Barabbas' cross, but he took our place on that cross. He was our substitute. And I think we need to be reminded of that. I mean, I know we know that. But I think sometimes the way that we think so lightly of our sin, we maybe don't think about that as, as much as we are. We think of our sins oftentimes as small, whereas we think of the sins of other people as large. And part of that is because we have to suffer the consequences of their sin. And we get very put out by that. And so we see their sin is big and our sin is small. It's, it's sort of like surgery. What's the definition of major surgery and minor surgery? Well, I like what, how one person put it. They said, major surgery is anytime surgery happens to me. Minor surgery is when it happens to you. Okay. Well, it's sort of the opposite with sin. You know, we think that our sin is minor and other people's sin is major. But James tells us in James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law, who does everything that God says, but fails in one point, just one tiny little thing, is guilty of all of it. It's like the illustration I, I heard a, a preacher share. He said, it's like if you had an expensive vase and you accidentally drop that vase, and whether it's cracked or whether it's smashed into a million pieces... It's compromised and it's broken. And it's the same way with God's law. We have broken God's law and we are guilty of all of it. And there's only one person who has kept that law perfectly. And we read in our text that he stood silently before his accusers so that he might be your substitute and he might be my substitute. Jesus is our only hope in life and death. As Peter says, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's, that's the substitution. That He might bring us to God. He took our place. You see, it's interesting because it was the Father who gave Jesus for us. Now Jesus willingly did this. He wanted to do the Father's will. But it's interesting, as you look at this text, 
one thing I'll just tell you as you're studying the Bible and you're looking at a text of Scripture, look for words that are repeated. That's usually an important thing, okay? And in this text, a word that's reported, repeated like three times is the word deliver. And look at verse 1. The elders and scribes and the whole council delivered Jesus over to Pilate. Uh, also, verse 10, Pilate sort of understands the reason why he was delivered over. And then in verse 15, Pilate delivered Jesus over to be crucified. Now, to deliver means to give over, right? Well, in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, Romans 8, 32, we read these words. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That word gave up in, in English is the same word that's used here for deliver. He was handed over. And so the father did not spare his own son, but he delivered him over. He gave him up so that we might be redeemed. And this is our most basic confession today, that Jesus died for me, that he bore the suffering that my sins deserve, that my guilt deserved. So as, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Think about that. Jesus never experienced sin. Never. He knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus was silent for you. He, was, he suffered for you. He was the substitute for you. What does that mean for you this morning as you think about that? As you just sort of contemplate on that. Is it merely a story that you have heard over and over and over in the church? And honestly, it's getting sort of boring. All the preacher talks about is how Jesus Christ died for me. Or is it a story like that's captured in that great hymn, Tell Me the Old, Old Story. And I want to read the words to you this morning. And I want you to listen carefully and just to see, is this the, the desire of your heart this morning? Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above. Of Jesus and His glory. Of Jesus and His love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child. For I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. Can anybody here relate to that? That you're weak and you're weary and you're helpless and you're defiled? We need that, this story. Tell me the story softly with earnest tones engraved. Remember, I'm the sinner whom Jesus came to save. Tell me the story always. If you would really be in any time of trouble, a comfort to me. You see, I need to hear that story if it's to be a comfort to me because I'm that sinner that, has, that Jesus died for. And I need to know that story. And to trust in Christ and what he has done. And then the hymn ends, tell me the same old story. When you have cause to fear, 
that this world's empty glory is costing me too dear. Yes, and when that world's glory is drawing on my soul, tell me the old, old story. Christ Jesus makes thee whole. You see, when we're tempted to follow after the glory and the ways of the world, and sin looks so good, and, and, and we are struggling in our walk with the Lord, we need to hear the story. It's not the ways of the world. It's not the things that the world offers that will make us whole. But the Savior who has died for us, who was silent, who suffered, and was a substitute for you. Let's pray. Take just a moment as we just bow in a time of silence just to talk to the Lord silently and to pray to Him. Maybe to confess sins, maybe to give praise to Him for His miraculous salvation, whatever it may be. Just take a few moments and spend time with the Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for leaving your throne of glory to come to earth and to suffer on behalf of your people, to stand accused in our place so that we could be set free. Oh Lord, forgive us for our sin and forgive us for our flippant attitudes sometimes towards our sin how we treat such things so lightly. Oh God, may we return to this story over and over and over again. And as, as Jeff said, if that doesn't warm your heart, the, the wood is wet. But Lord, we pray that you would warm our hearts with the truth of what you have done for us and your great love for your church. Oh Lord, please, would you cause us to turn to you and to trust in you? And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone who is hearing my voice this morning, here in this room or on the live stream, that, that God, you would convict them of their sin, but also make clearly the hope that is theirs in Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would be bringing people into your kingdom to be set free, Lord, to have a renewed heart, mind, desires, and wills to glorify you. We pray in your name. Amen.